morning. Our scripture reading today is from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He came to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom brush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. These are the words of the Lord. Mark was probably the brightest among us PhD students at the seminary at the time. Was also already an excellent pastor, preacher, uh, pastor of a small church just because of his school responsibilities as well. But very professional, just very good uh, at what he did, a consummate pastor. And so it was unsettling to me to hear through the grapevine that uh, it was reported by some lay people in the church that he had been saying some inappropriate things to people, which sounded so uncharacteristic of him. I could give you more of the details, but I'll spare you that. I'll just say it wasn't long after that that I found myself on the fourth floor of a psychiatric ward where Mark had been checked in because he had had a depressive breakdown. Come to find out he was suffering from a biochemical propensity toward depression. Now, some people, I think we all get depressed at some point, uh, but, but there are some who have that biochemical propensity, and Mark had that and has that. And I remember going to see him, and he was scribbling out his letter of resignation to the church because he was so, so, uh, not just disappointed, but embarrassed. And he just thought that was the right thing to do, and he had handed it to a deacon, and the deacon uh, left with it. But let me ask you, have you ever been depressed? It could be you've had a depressive breakdown or you have that propensity towards it. Some people do. Uh, It can be a family, uh, uh, something that is induced just through the family genetic line, as you know. If you are a stranger to it, you won't be before it's all over. Let me just put it that way. There will be a time when you find yourself down, blue, in despair, really trying to climb out of a shadow, but it's difficult to do so. Now, many of the most powerful and influential figures in history suffered from it on a regular basis. I think for some of them it was quite chronic. Do you know who said this? I am now the most miserable man alive. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or do better. That could have come from the lips of Elijah. But it came from the lips of Abraham Lincoln, perhaps our greatest president. But many of the great leaders of the world, Martin Luther is a great example. He struggled with what he called the melancholy on a daily basis all of his life. Winston Churchill, same thing. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great pulpiteer of the 19th century, the greatest pulpiteer, many would say, of that century, struggled with it on a regular basis. You can go into the field of writing. William Styron, one of the great writers of the English-speaking world, struggled with it and wrote an interesting memoir about it called Darkness Visible. You could go on and on with a litany of people from history, but what about biblical history? Moses himself struggled with depression. Go to Numbers chapter 11, 
where he is so frustrated and feels like things are so futile when it comes to leading the children of Israel that he is just burnt out physically, mentally, emotionally, and indeed spiritually, and he actually asks God, if I have found any favor in your sight, please take my life now. Jeremiah struggled with depression. The Apostle Paul, go to 2 Corinthians where he talks about where there was a point where I despaired of life itself. This is the mightiest missionary in history. And he himself, yes, struggled with it. Now, if these great figures from history and even biblical history are vulnerable, we're vulnerable to it, you and I are as well, without question. So I want us to focus this morning, though, on another giant of biblical history, that being Elijah. Now, he had just taken on 450 prophets of the Baal gods and defeated them. They kind of had a contest, as many of you know, on Mount Carmel to see who really was the true God. And in the end, Elijah was successful. He actually called down fire from heaven that landed on an altar, burned up all of the sacrifice and even the water therein. And all of the 450 prophets of Baal bowed down and said, okay, Elijah's God is the right God. It was a great victory. It was just an amazing moment. And then he said... Now God will bring a refreshing rain upon the land. He proclaimed that to King Ahab, and sure enough, later that day, a much-needed rain fell on the land. Elijah was so fired up about it, so full of the Spirit, it says that he ran all the way from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, which is 18 miles. This is a strong man, powerful man, good athlete. This guy seems superhuman, right? Wrong. It's not long at all before this that he hears about an angry threat from Queen Jezebel, who really is in charge of this corrupt nation at the time. And Elijah flees at that point from Jezreel to Beersheba, and then he leaves his servant in Beersheba and then walks alone, key word alone, one more day into the wilderness, which as you know is the desert And he finds himself physically exhausted, and now you find him, obviously, to the point of depression. I mean, he would be diagnosed as depressed at this point. And he finds himself under a broom tree or a broom bush, and he's stewing in that despair and depression. To the point where he says to God, what? Take my life. Take my life. He's depressed. In fact, if you look at verse 4 of what Lau read, it's interesting because he doesn't just say, take my life. He says what? I am no better than my ancestors. Or some translations say, I am no better than my fathers. Isn't it interesting? He's comparing himself. And that's what depression often does. It affects our sense of self-worth. And depression can do that. We wind up comparing ourselves to the people around us. And why can't my life be like this person's over here? And this person obviously has a better life, and I'm not as good a person as that. And and this, this really bad cycle of comparing yourself to others takes place. Now, is Elijah really not as good as others? Absolutely not. Is he a failure? Absolutely not. Has he been unfaithful? No, not at all. Would you call him weak? No, I'd call him a pretty strong guy running 18 miles over to Jezreel. But when you're Battling depression, sometimes you can nevertheless feel like a failure, and you can feel unfaithful when you're not a failure, and you're not unfaithful. And that's when you're really vulnerable to evil, I think. That is when the evil one really wants you to be deceived into believing that you are a failure and that you are unfaithful, but you're not. You're not. We're very much a part of a, of a broken world, And we can find ourselves sooner than later at a point of despair 
and depression. I want us to look at three contributing factors to Elijah's depression because I think these can contribute to ours when we experience it. First of all, simply physical exhaustion. Yeah, he had run 18 miles straight from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. Then he finds out that there's really a hit on him, basically. You know, they're trying to assassinate him. And so he takes off looking behind his back all the time. But he is, he is in full mode going forward and goes from Jezreel uh, to, uh, uh, to Beersheba. He gets to Beersheba, leaves his servant there, and he goes another day's walk into the wilderness by himself. Folks, that's at least 130 miles total. He's physically spent. And depression can begin as a physical exhaustion that spills over into the other facets of who you are, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. It just does that. And I want you to remember this because this is proper Christian theology. You do not have a soul. You are a soul. Now, that may sound kind of lofty, and why are you telling me this? We do not agree with the Greeks of that day who said, you know, no, the body and the soul are separate. No, you are a soul. And think about that. Your body and your soul are pretty much the same thing. Therefore, when something impacts you like physical exhaustion and it starts to impact other parts of you, your soul is suffering. So you are suffering, yes, maybe physically and emotionally, but also spiritually, no doubt. And we're all vulnerable to that. And it can be, it can be physical exhaustion after a high point of something <laughs> that takes place in your life that winds up kind of turning on you. I'll never forget when uh, Dr. Joel Gregory, who's one of the great preachers of our time, he uh, teaches preaching down at Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor. Uh, amazing guy, has a voice like God, but lower. He's one of those guys, just an amazing guy. And uh, he became a Christian at age 19, became a preacher at age 19, and he already had the gift. I mean, he's a compelling speaker, just a remarkable, remarkable preacher. And he did three back-to-back revival services over the course of three weeks. And he said, and he says to this day, and he's much older now, He says, to this day, those are the three greatest weeks spiritually I've ever experienced. I was just on a mountaintop the whole time. I saw people come to Christ in profound ways. And it was just amazing how God worked through me and confirmed this call to the ministry. And you know how he celebrated in the aftermath of all that? He was so physically exhausted that he needed to check himself into Harris Hospital in downtown Fort Worth. And he spent five days there, basically sleeping and eating. And that was it. He had a depressive breakdown. So again... That's one thing, when you, when you reach the mountaintop, that's great, but the only place to go where is, is definitely down, and that's a challenging part of it. And, and, and you see, that, that really leads to a second reason that I think Elijah got depressed. It was the natural aftermath of a high point. Here he had just defeated the prophets of Baal, and, and I suppose he thought, well, things are going to change here, and Ahab and Jezreel, uh, Jezebel rather will be out of power now, and things are going to start changing, but they don't. And there's this aftermath where he realizes, well, wait a minute, things aren't quite working out as they seem. And, and this really hasn't kept going the way I was hoping for, the way I've been praying for. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, the, the one prayer that God seems to not ever answer is the prayer, prayer encore. It's <laughs> a good way of putting it. You know, you can have these, these spiritual highs, these mountaintop experiences, experiences, and something great happens, but then you've got to come down from those. In a way, you could apply it to birth. Sometimes women give birth to a child, and it's a great high moment, but a, a few days later, you might have postpartum blues. That happens on a regular basis. An athletic team might have a great victory, like some did yesterday, uh, but then there's always the potential for letdown. 
and, and, and you know, something happens and, and it, they really kind of go down a bit, and it's just natural. We have a great time during the Advent season celebrating Christmas, then you get the January blues, all different examples, but again, so often it happens that you're on this high, but then you can really go down quickly. And I think that's why highly motivated people are vulnerable to depression. Data shows that, by the way. So the most vulnerable people to depression are highly motivated. And in fact, people in higher socioeconomic status often are the most vulnerable. Interesting. Why is that? Well, at least in part, we, we expect to continue to experience this exaltation of all this success, these things that we have worked hard for. But then you say, I don't understand. Why am I down? Why am I depressed? I've worked hard and I've succeeded and I've got all these great things. Why am I so down? What's wrong with me? Well, it's kind of that pattern of I've done all these things, but it's not amounting to quite what I had expected. It's not quite good enough. What was it Alexander said when Alexander the Great realized he had conquered the entire world? What he wept. Why? There were no more worlds to conquer. It's almost a letdown after accomplishment. And I think Elijah experienced that. And there's a third factor that I think contributed to his depression, and it was a sense of futility. He was exasperated with the circumstances. Here he had had this incredible victory, over 450 prophets, and yet things did not change in this corrupt and depraved kingdom. I'm sure he asked, well, after something like that, why isn't there change? I think one of the most vulnerable things that that can lead to someone feeling depressed is when you hear them say, nothing I am doing matters, and that's not true. But sometimes we feel that way. Nothing I do makes a difference. So I think those all, you know, the, 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 uh, the exhaustion and the sense of futility and the sense of being let down after being on a high. And, and sometimes you and I experience those things as well. But how do we overcome depression? You know, the Bible says that God comforts the downcast, and I think he does, and I think he does so in in four significant ways with Elijah, and he might be able to do that for you today, especially if you yourself are struggling right now. Maybe it's not clinical depression that you're dealing with, but at least you have the blues or you're down about something, and and you're kind of in in a ditch that you're trying to climb out of and can't quite get out of it. Well, what are some things that God offers for you because he offered them to Elijah? Well, first of all, quite simply, rest. Very simple, but very profound. You go to verse 5, it says, then Elijah lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Sounds like my friend Joel Gregory. He just slept and ate for five days and sometimes that's what you need. You just need to interrupt this stress perhaps that leads to depression. And we run into this because we're in a culture here, and we've said this before, we are all quite, well, a lot of us here are quite type A personalities. We want, we have the drive. We want to get after it. We want to succeed. That's all good and fine. Though we, we are type A people in the hopes of becoming more type. I heard it. Who said that over there? God bless you. Who said that over there? G, G for grace. Thank you. A bunch of people said it in the first service, and they said it through clenched teeth, like, gee, for grace. They don't, they don't want to go there. It was great. It was grace. <laughs> but we are type A people. So we have this strong work ethic. You and I were probably raised on a strong work ethic to get it done, accomplish, do what you can. And the Bible says, what, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if you are working for the Lord. And we want to do that in our lives. 
But oftentimes, you and I can make that an idol. We take it to an extreme, and we drive ourselves too much, and we take stuff home that we don't need to take home, and it can really zap us of our strength. I can't help but just think of Jesus, who, when the disciples came back from some really intense you know, two-on-two, they go out there and, and start sharing the gospel and do incredible things, and they want to come back and report it to Jesus. Jesus stops them and says, you've been busy, let's go over there and just take a time of rest. The old King James says, let us come apart and go and rest for a while. I love that. I think it was Vance Habner, the, the old-time preacher, said, if you don't take some time to come apart, you're going to come apart. That was kind of clever. But again, let us get away for a while. Jesus had this wonderful rhythm between intense working, but also taking time to get away. And I know we've talked about it before in Hebrews chapter 4, where it says, a rest remains for the people of God. Therefore, let us enter into that rest whenever we can. And we need to do just that. We need to find places of rest and respite. And yes, even vacation. By the way, I read this just the other day, that if a preacher is good, he deserves four weeks of vacation. If he's not good, the congregation deserves it. So there you go. I'll let you sort that out. (laughs) You need a vacation. Okay. So God gives him rest. Secondly, he gives him, yes, revelation. He comes to Elijah. You know the famous story. He doesn't come in the form of the wind or the the, the fire or the earthquake. He comes in a what? Does anybody know? Still, small voice. I love it in the Hebrew. It it literally means um, a, a thin voice, a very thin thin, soundless voice. And yet he knew that it was God, but think about it. So many times, you know, we, <laughs> it'd be great if God could come rescue us in some, some dramatic way, you know, even with noise and bells and whistles and all that, but he usually does not do that. He does it with a still, small voice, or as N.T. Wright calls it, I love it, he calls it the echo of a voice. Sometimes we don't recognize it at the time, but it's so interesting because we can look back at it weeks later, months later, sometimes years later, and say, oh, that's when he was there. That's what he was trying to get across to me. But sometimes it's challenging because I think what we have to do sometimes, and this is what depression can tempt you to do, is to go really so down inside of yourself that you can't get outside of yourself, if that makes sense. We can wind up being so introspective We can internalize things so much and analyze things so much that we don't consider the need to step outside of ourselves. We talked last week about Psalm 27 where it says, you know, even if if a a host of enemies is encamped around me, he will set me high on a rock. Do you remember that? And I love that picture of God setting us high on a rock to where we can step outside of ourselves, see the forest before the trees, see the big picture, and see this amazing, omnipotent, sovereign God who is in charge of it all. And that's a challenging thing to do when we find ourselves in depression, but sometimes we've got to step outside of ourselves, get to that high place, and see what the sovereign God has to say about it. And let me say this, go into the Word of God. (laughs) That sounds real preachy, I know, but go into the Word of God. I'm not saying that if you read certain verses, it's going to be some type of shallow transaction where, oh, I read this verse, I'm going to be fine now. I'm not saying that at all. But there are some powerful passage of, passages of Scripture that if you really claim them in your life can do an amazing amount of work, especially when you're really in a blue phase of life, a difficult, depressive phase of life. I read an interview recently with a woman named Barbara Bergen whose uh, uh, husband is a, is a really prominent pastor in, in Louisville, Kentucky. And she has battled clinical depression all her life. And she was interviewed in this magazine asking her, you know, what... What really keeps you going? Because she's a very, very respected uh, uh, minister herself. 
And she said this, I've not been to, I have been to counselors and they've been amazingly helpful and I've taken medication that has helped as well. Time out. I've just got to say this. And I say this as one who's, I took more classes on pastoral counseling in my master's and PhD work than any others. I mean, my, my degree is in preaching, but I actually took more in pastoral counseling. I'm not licensed, uh, but I'm, I could be very close to it. So let me just say this from a pastoral counseling standpoint. Going to counseling can be the most successful, mature, professional thing you can do. I just lament the tragedy that we still have in American culture to where we have this stigma to it. You know, not to do that is, is to say, no, I'm really not that broken. Well, you know what? That's what Adam and Eve tried to do was try to be perfect like God. Sometimes if you are that broken, you need to go seek out help. It's poor theology not to. It, it pained me. Oh, I got an amen on that. Oh, watch out now. Do you need healing? Come on up here. Let's go. No. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. And that's dead on. And let me say, somebody after the first service, and I don't think they mind this, and, and, I, and they're being anonymous. We're talking about real people, real life, real love here. Somebody came up to me after the first service because I did this little parenthetical statement that I'm giving now, took my hand, and that person said, thank you so much. She, she said, on two different occasions as I was growing up, Ministers came to my house when someone in my family was depressed, and they said, if you just have enough faith, you shouldn't have to go to counseling and take medication for this, and you just need to have more faith. Um, I'm just going to say that is evidence of a shallow understanding of our depravity as broken people in need of redemption. And, and that crawls all over me, and I'll just leave it there. But let me just say, wrong. Did somebody say wrong over there? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Do you have anything else to say? I mean, we're just <laughs> you're, you're right on, though. You're right on. Yeah. Hey, who made that medicine? God did. I'm, I mean it. Yeah. Okay. And you know, God made it, by the way. And God made counselors. God made counselors who are fellow broken people, but who have the skill to help you process through these things. Uh, right, right with you on that. It is poor theology to deny your brokenness. And, and, and to me, that's, <laughs> that's poor theology of depravity if you're just going to deny it and try to just throw up this image, this little veneer of, oh, I'm just fine. And if I just pray enough, if I just have enough faith. To me, honestly, that's evil seeping in saying, why am I still depressed? Oh, I'm obviously a failure, and I am unfaithful. Yeah, that's Satan wanting to get at you. Can I just tell you that? Don't fall prey to that. Go and seek the help. Okay, thank you, and, and thank you, Marla. Um, going back to Barbara's interview, what I love about what she said was, I, and she just offers some passages of Scripture that she said, man, I have hung on to these, and they have meant so much to me. And she says, this isn't just a shallow transaction and whoo I feel better having uh, uh, read this passage but she said these are some that I have just clung to for years and years first of all she said 2 Corinthians 12 9 where Jesus where God says he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me and Barbara said, I came to realize that even though I was weak, maybe that's when God's power was resting me and he was working through me in ways I did not even realize and I could trust that. I think that's very cool. Even when you and I are 
downcast over something, going through something that's difficult. God can still work through us. We might not even begin to believe that. We feel like a shell, but he still can because his grace is sufficient. That's a strong, strong word. Secondly, she said, I always loved Romans 8.26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. She said, I would get so down to the point where I would throw up my arms and say, God, I don't know what to say anymore. I really don't know what to say. I don't know how to pray. She said, but then I came to this passage, and it it made me realize, you know what? Even if I don't have the words, the Holy Spirit intercedes for me, and indeed what that's saying on another level is the Holy Spirit is praying for me. It's God praying for me. She said, that meant so much to me that he's praying for me. But she said, the scripture that helped me the most was Mark 14, 34, where Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying this, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This is Jesus. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And Barbara said, I can't tell you how comforting that was to realize Jesus understood how I felt because he was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That he even took on that kind of sorrow, that kind of despair for you and me, and indeed he carried that to the cross that we could be made whole even of such difficult matters like depression. And she went on to say, these scriptures helped me so much. I didn't jump off the couch as a healed person immediately, but that's the moment that the healing started. It got my mind off of myself and back on the sovereign God of all things, and that's when I began to turn the corner. That's a great word of strength, and there are some passages like that that if you just claim them over and over can be so, so helpful. So God gave Elijah rest and revelation, uh, just through his whisper and through his word. And he also gave Elijah responsibility, which was great. If you read chapter 15, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came, go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, appoint Hazael king over Aram. It's like he's got a little checklist. Also, anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat. And I I love how it goes down to verse 18. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel. All those knees have not bowed down to Baal, and those mouths have not kissed him. I'll get to that one in a minute because I love that. But again, he says, I've got work for you to do, Elijah. You need to go anoint some people. I want you to go go anoint some kings and anoint a prophet. And by the way, you're not alone. Uh, You've got things to do. And again, a lot of times when we're depressed, we might fall into pity, but we don't need pity. We need a new challenge. And, And I say this because you can develop some really bad habits, as you know, if you're down. I mean, you're so vulnerable. You can fall prey to to drugs or alcohol, or you can overeat. You can just lie on the couch, and you've got to break out of that and take what can feel like a mammoth task when you're feeling that hollow inside, but you've got to get up and walk, get up and exercise, get up and cook yourself a meal, get up and, and, and get into a new activity, a new hobby. You don't need security at that point so much as you need stimulation. You, you need to get the creative adrenaline flowing again. I read recently, by the way, Florence Nightingale. Have you ever heard that name? You know, this, this great um, figure in nursing, famous English nurse. She took to the bed when she was 56 years old because she was convinced that she was dying of heart disease. And she remained basically bedridden from age 56 until she died at age 90. True story. She lived to be 90. 34 years of a pity party. Oh, it's going to come along any time. Uh, she needed a new challenge, I would say. Get out of that bed. You know, I mean, she did great things, but come on. Think about your call also, and let me just say this. Think about your call to leave a legacy 
to those coming after you. Even if you're young and you deal with the blues sometimes, I mean, it's important to try to, to, to continue to invest in people. I think more than ever, the church is in need of people who are older mentoring over other people. You'll hear students say a lot, you know, well, I, you know, th- this person has just poured themselves into me, or I, I so long to pour myself into somebody. I, I just think that's great. But we need that now more than ever. And I think with that passage about my grace is sufficient, that there's power in your weakness. Even at times when you are down, trust me, you are making a difference. You are not a failure. You're not unfaithful. You're actually making a big difference. And you can continue to do that. I think of my father. My, my mom died um, in 1992. It's very tragic. She got cancer and went pretty quickly, and we had always waited for uh, my father to die first because he was a lot older than her. She had been a student of his in seminary. You've heard me say, you know, uh, she always said, I didn't get the best grade, but I got more out of that class than anybody. (laughs) So, okay. (laughs) So cute. Uh, But we always knew dad was going to go first, just logically. Well, life doesn't always work out that way. When mom died, though, my dad was very frail, had been frail for years. He had had quadruple bypass, and then about 10 years later, quintuple bypass. He had diabetes. He had all kinds of physical ailments. Uh, no t- I, I just keep telling him, one day I'm just going to explode. Thanks, Dad, you know, all this genetic stuff. But anyway, I don't know. But um, he was very, very frail. We were certain he would not last more than a year. I mean, the whole family gathered together other than Dad and said, this is going to be sad. He's not going to last long. Um, at some point, my father just realized, I need to leave a legacy. I've left a legacy with some of these books I've written and lectures I've given and that kind of thing, students I've helped, but I need to leave a direct legacy with community around me. My gosh, it sounds like real people, real life, real love. He basically sent some letters out in his own matter-of-fact way saying, hey, I'm old and I'm lonely and uh, let's get together and let's talk about ethical issues and theology or let's just talk about how you're doing and let's meet once a week at my house at this time and all that. Well, they started a group, and it, it became known as Barnett's Buddies. And they would get together, and it was a real age span and all, but they got together. It was always between 5 and 15 people. And folks, that group kept him alive for 13 more years till he died when he was 93. If he had not had that group, he would have died much sooner, much sooner. He realized how pivotal that was, not just to feed him, but he would say, hey, yeah, y'all, come on, I'm lonely, come help me. But at the same time, he poured into them. And I think the legacy is Barnett's buddies still meets to this day. It's not always a big group, but man, Dad died in uh, 04, and they're still meeting. (laughs) So again, that's just a cool thing of what community can do. And we've had these intentional uh, uh, structured times for us to meet with equipping groups or small groups, whatever. And it's really cool how that has really added life and breathed life for some of us. Well, again, I think... Sometimes that's what we need to do is take on something new like that and, and see it as a real calling for ourselves, a real, yes, responsibility to pour ourselves into others. Well, finally, okay, so he gave Elijah what rest. He gave him revelation. He gave him responsibility. And finally, relationships. And, and I think, hear me on this, one of the most critical dynamics that I always observe with depression is somebody feeling isolated, feeling utterly alone. That's what Elijah says to God. I'm all alone. I mean, he says that. And that was a big danger with Elijah. He left his servant in Beersheba. He goes another day out into the desert, and he's all alone. And he tells God, I'm all alone. But you remember verse 18 that I read earlier? God is basically saying, "Uh, there are 7,000 other people that are just like you who wouldn't bow down to the Baals. So, you know, you've got family out there. You've got 
7,000 more family out there, which I think is a beautiful statement. And among those 7,000 is one whom he poured himself into. Elijah wound up being the, the mentor to who? Can you name the name? Sounds a lot like Elijah. You people are amazing. Yes, Elisha. And Elisha winds up surpassing Elijah in a lot of ways, and they kind of complement one another, and it's just this wonderful mentor-protege relationship that, again, breathed life for Elijah and helped him climb out of that sense of depression. You know, if you're feeling like you are in crisis, down, you know, depressed, whatever term you want to use for it, I can't think of a better place than Brookwood Baptist Church to try to find some help and some community. I don't know, I've never been a part of a better, and I'm not schmoozing you here, uh, uh, I've never been a part of a better community that's so intentional about just being there for each other in crisis. If people can't pull you out of a ditch, they'll sit in it with you. That's the kind of people you've got here. And, And I think we're so blessed, and I would just encourage you, if you're going through some kind of difficulty, seek out some folks here who can be of help, because they will be there for you in a heartbeat. We see that again and again and again. Um, and, and I've just seen it just ratcheted up this year with this emphasis on real people, real life, real love. It always takes me back to that wonderful passage in Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10 where it says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Um, my friend Mark, who had that depressive breakdown, was so embarrassed. You know, This was Mr. Professional Pastor, so smooth, so eloquent, so together, so full of promise, probably the brightest guy in the Ph.D. program that I was in, writes his letter of resignation, gives it to the deacon. Well, two days later, the deacon board comes back, and they meet him. must be a real vulnerable feeling. I mean, he's lying there in bed on the fourth floor of a psychiatric ward, and they basically all walk in, and they hand him back the resignation letter and say, "Uh, Sir, we don't accept. And this was a great country church who just kind of cut through it, and they said, Well, Brother Mark... You know, we know you're crazy now, okay? So that's out there now. And we know you need counseling and you need a, I think they said shrink, psychiatrist. Uh, We know you need meds. Okay, some of us take meds for different things. Okay, take your meds. And when the meds aren't very balanced and you go crazy again, we'll let you know. I mean, that's what they said. They said, we'll let you know when you go crazy again. But Brother Mark, you've been, and this was great. Brother Mark, you've been there for us when we've gone crazy on you. And you've always been there for us, and you've always been so consistent with us, and you've always been our pastor. So let's make a covenant here. When we go crazy, you let us know. When you go crazy, and we'll be waiting for it, we'll let you know. And we're going to love on you as you've loved on us. That's what we think church is about. Is that an amen, Marla? Was that an amen? That's church. And that's the way we should be with one another. That's why Paul says when, when people are weaker, it's the weaker people at a certain moment in the history of a church that are given greater, not just care, it says given greater honor. And that's how you treat somebody who's going through that time of crisis, that time of despair. And I hope and pray that we can keep being that kind of church together. Let's have a word of prayer. This is what I want to do as we enter into this time of of meditation. First of all, if you are walking some dark path yourself in some area of your life or, or with all of your life, it doesn't have to be depression, just some kind of crisis and something is really getting you down or you're confused or whatever, just take a silent moment and pray to God and just trust, if nothing else, that that you will somewhere down the pike hear an echo of his voice and that even now, if you don't quite have the words to share, the Holy Spirit will intercede and pray for you. So do that for a moment.
and, and I hope and pray that whoever prayed quite uh, vulnerable prayers there will, will, will seek out people who can be of help, because help's around, and that's what God wants, is for you to find some community to help. I'd like to do one other thing, if you would, just, just think of someone you know other than yourself who's going through a difficult, dark time, and just pray a silent prayer for that person right now, please. Lord, again, it says in your word that your grace is sufficient and that you will work through our weakness. Help us to trust that. And it says that when we don't even know what to pray because we're so down, you even pray for us. Help us to trust that. And Lord, your whole word as a whole and your son Jesus says, are you down? Are you depressed? You're not a failure. You are not a failure. You're my child. And you're not unfaithful. Help us to trust those things, God. And, and we're about to sing, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. May we trust you that in those areas of darkness with which we wrestle, we can trust that you are still working in it through and through us and trust that you will get us through this dark time and bring us toward the light. We pray these things in your name. Amen. If you feel led to make some kind of decision to accept Christ for the first time or to be baptized uh, as Edward was this morning, uh, if you feel led to move your church membership, whatever it might be, you are welcome to do that as we stand to sing Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus.